0: Hi, everybody. Here we are again, Kings Point Republican Club of Tamarack that was never supposed to happen. Proud to be here, proud to have club membership. Hopefully, we'll all get to see each other soon. Uh, We're going to start the the podcast with our usual Pledge of Allegiance. Of course, you can't see the flag, but uh, uh, just like the president says, uh, we have a big, beautiful flag in front of us, so just close your eyes and you'll see it. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Okay, by the time you hear this uh, podcast, uh, it would have been after the debate, which is going to be tonight, uh, because this is Tuesday afternoon, and uh, a lot of anxiety out there. Of course, uh, we do believe in our president. Uh, We don't apologize for being Republicans, and we don't apologize for our values and principles. We don't apologize for our love of country, and we don't apologize for supporting law enforcement. Last but not least, we don't apologize for supporting President Trump and his reelection. We are the President's army of patriots, and I can't emphasize that enough. If you look around the country, you see a lot of enthusiasm, and enthusiasm is contagious. So I urge you all to do your research, because the media won't show you all the enthusiasm that's out there. Every weekend, there there are boat parades and street corner rallies, caravans from New York to California, including New York and California. So I urge you all to... uh, Uh, Do your research, pay attention. Try not to delete my emails when you see them, because sometimes uh, some of them are pretty good, you know. Uh, Anyway, we have two candidates today uh, for our podcast, and um, they're both registered Republicans, and they're on the ballot. Hopefully, we'll get you before you mail your ballot in. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I just want to uh, remind everybody that uh, uh, there is a prejudice against faith right now, and we're going to see uh, a lot more as the uh, weeks uh, progress here before the election, especially with the nomination of uh, uh, Amy Barrett for the Supreme Court. And I uh, just want to uh, make sure that uh, the folks know that it's not just anti-Jews, but it's anti-Catholics too. So, you know, the country was built on Judeo-Christian values and principles, and I think we're getting a, getting a good kick in the butt us Jews and Catholics uh, from those who have no faith. So, uh, I want everybody to pay attention to what's going on here. Remember what they did to uh, Kavanaugh and uh, can't even imagine how the plans are to go after, uh, go after, go after uh, Amy Barrett, especially because of the background the lady has. So do your research, have your ammunition ready for your conversations with the uh, Never Trumpers and uh, we'll, give it a, we'll give it a go, okay? Our first guest is uh, Catherine McBreen, and Catherine is running for the Supervisor of Elections position here in Broward. I don't know how long it's been since there's been a Republican at the helm, other than this latest appointment that uh, Governor DeSantis made um, uh, you know, for the, after he was elected in 2018. But uh, I've met uh, Kathleen on more than one occasion and uh, I've stood on uh, street corners with her here in Broward. We've waved flags and uh, we've gotten a lot of thumbs up and horn blowing from the uh, passers-by in and around the Broward area here from uh, Davie to uh, uh, I think uh, the last, last weekend we were over here in uh, Oakland Park with the Women for Trump, uh, Coral Springs, the corner of Sample Road and University Drive. Uh, Every Saturday for the next uh, bunch of Saturdays, right up until Election Day, you can catch anybody that's running for something or any one of us patriots that are out there yelling and screaming and praising. And uh, My wife and I are out there waving flags and um, signs and it's great to have people drive by and blow their horns in support of us and for the candidates running. On the Republican ticket here in Broward and for the President of the United States. So, with that, I want to introduce Kathleen and she'll tell you a little bit about herself and then I have some questions for her. Kathleen?
1: Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Um, it's great to be here. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in the Midwest. Um, I grew up in the farm area of Illinois and I went to Northwestern University in Chicago, the Chicago area. It's actually in Evanston. And then I, um, Went to law school at DePaul Law School in college after college. Um, My mom and dad one was a Democrat one was a Republican and I used to say to them why do you both go vote on election day because one's canceling out the other and um, they both especially my mother was like you know it's really important because every vote counts you don't know that these two votes are canceling each other out every vote counts so that was really important to me. So after I finished law school I went to work for a um, law firm in Chicago And it was called um, Hopkins and Sutter, and Hopkins and Sutter later became a big firm called Foley and Lardner. But their primary client were savings and loans was the FSLIC, who went during that time and closed hundreds of savings and loans across the country. I don't know if any of you remember that. But my job and here I was a twenty six year old young lady going with a sheriff on a Friday night, knocking on the door of a savings and loan and locking all the employees in and basically telling them they were out of business and we were going to go through all their desks. So I learned a lot about compliance law. I learned a lot about getting along with people in really extremely difficult situations. I went then on to work for a large bank and I was compliance counsel and trust counsel where we, you know, we really were in charge of the beneficiaries, making sure that they were being taken care of um, against other people who might be against them. And I was fortunate enough to be promoted into a position where I was able to run a large operational division, because sometimes when you're in a bank, compliance and um, trust law gets a little bit snoozy. So I was able to go and run this large operational unit of 200 to 300 um, people that we really processed securities, we did accounting and record keeping on different accounts. And it was during the time in the 1990s where young people won't remember this, but older folks like myself will remember that, you know, we used to get statements once a quarter from the bank about how much money we have, and now we expect to know every minute how much money we have all the time. So I was really in. Impl- uh, integral in implementing how we manage those accounts and transfer them to what they call now daily valuation. So I learned a lot about processing, I learned about, a lot about security and operations, and I took that and I joined a company that does auditing and compliance review for large financial institutions. So I've been doing that for the last 25 years. Um, we look. We go to big companies like Bank of America and small companies, and you know, we go to securities firms, we go to places like, I don't know. Um, Merrill Lynch, and we go through their operations and we say, this is what you're doing right, this is what you're doing wrong, this is how you can make it better, and we compare them against each other. So I learned a lot about that. And I think a lot of that is very applicable to what um, the supervisor of elections needs to do. They need to be, he or she, hopefully she, needs to be aware of all of the operations and how they work and how they can be, how fraud can be how fraud can occur and what you need to do to stop it and how you can make it more efficient and how we can move it forward into the future when things will be a lot different than they are today. So that's who I am and that's how I got started.
0: Okay. Uh, we'll take a short breather, like three seconds, okay. and then I start asking you some questions. Uh, I had put the question out uh, to my, uh, or the opportunity out to my uh, contact list. I said, if you have any questions for uh, Kathleen uh, and for the uh, for Greg Rossman, who's going to be the next speaker, to please send them in to me so I have a list here. A few a few questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, why are you running for the Supervisor of Elections here in Broward?
1: That's a great question. The reason is because, you know, it's really embarrassing every time there's a major election in the United States to see crowds of reporters outside the Supervisor of Elections office in Broward County, waiting to see how all of the elections are going to turn out. I mean. What I would perceive is I want Broward County to be just like everybody else and not be in the news and just report our results. Um, the other reason is that, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of my life in Illinois and there's a lot of fraud and a lot of unsavory political it, things that happen in Illinois. And I really want to make sure that here in Florida that that doesn't happen and that we continue to have a really like robust, um, strong state overall. And that, that requires us to make sure that our votes are being counted effectively.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, What makes you qualified to be uh, the supervisor of elections for Broward?
1: Well, first of all, I passionately believe that every vote counts and needs to count. I really believe that it's important to be nonpartisan. And I guess I would say one of the things that I want to do is to make sure that everybody knows that this particular office, I don't believe. Recently, we passed what was called Amendment 10 in Florida, which said all offices like this should be um, voted, should be political. And I don't believe that. I believe this particular office, and I actually believe a lot of those offices, should be nonpartisan. It should be elected by a bipartisan committee or board or something based on that person's qualifications. And I believe my qualifications, having done a lot of financial auditing in the last 30 years, makes me the best candidate.
0: Financial auditing, I would think, covers uh, everybody, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. <laughs> exactly. Obviously. Very good. Um, let's see. Next question. What are, the, what are the first steps you will take as supervisor of elections?
1: So the first things I'm going to do is the first thing that I do whenever I have a project in the, um, my private business mode, um, because I'm not a politician, I'm a business person, I'm going to go and I'm going to go through every process and procedure that exists as the supervisor of elections office. And there have to be a lot of them, because even in off years, you're thinking about how are you updating the voter rolls? How are we making sure that people who are dead are off of the voter rolls? All of those processes and procedures need to be taken and looked at under a microscope. And we need to chart them all out and figure out how can we do them better? Where are the potential opportunities for fraud? And where do we want it to go in the future? So, and hopefully make it more efficient.
0: Okay. Are you, are you concerned about mail-in voting, and the second part of that question is, what would you recommend to ensure that each vote is safe?
1: Okay. Um, so, for those of you who aren't familiar with mail-in voting versus versus um, absentee voting, which is what we have here in Florida, I think it's important to understand the difference because you hear these terms combined on the news, and it's easy to be confused about what has been, ha- what happens or what will happen. So mail-in voting, as being proposed by many of the states, basically says we're going to be sending out ballots to everybody we have in our database, and they can just send them back. Uh, well, as you know, and as we all know, a lot of those people may be dead. They may have moved. I mean, Illinois, for example, where I lived two years ago, is sending out everybody who was on the 2016 database. Well, so obviously I'm going to get a, a ballot in Illinois. Maybe I should you know, drive up there and get it or something. And so I can vote twice, but obviously I wouldn't do that, but that's how it works. Whereas here in Florida, you have to request the ballot. So one, they know that you're alive. Secondly, they're sending it to an address that that is on record. And third, they'll have your signature on file as well. So when you get your uh, mail-in ballot, we will know, or we will be able to track that you actually have it. Now, um, how do, how do I recommend that you go about making sure that you've got it? Well, first of all, all of these ballots are tracked online, so once you've requested it, you can go in and you can see that you've requested it, it's, it's in the mail coming to you. Once you get it, you can fill it out, and then you can choose to do a lot of different things, and depending upon who you are and what you feel comfortable with, um, there are a lot of options. One, if you don't feel comfortable and you don't trust the U.S. mail, don't mail it back in. Take it to one of the early voting places and give it to, give it to them. And then you can still track online, go back and see that it's actually been received by the Supervisor of Elections. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can hold on to it until Election Day if you choose and take it with you to the polls. Um, they will take it away from you then and invalidate it and give you an actual ballot, but um, you will still know that, you know that you've actually voted. So there are a lot of different things that you can do. One of the things that I know that some of the, the parties have been recommending, both Democrat and Republican is that you do request the mail-in ballot and you do take it and hold, hold on to it. And the reason they like it, that you, to know that you have it, they have the ability to call you then and say, make sure you don't forget to turn that in. So that's one of the reasons that most of the parties are saying, request the mail-in ballot and then how you decide to vote it is up to you.
0: That's why we're getting so many phone calls.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know, And there's one thing I want to mention. There are a lot of people in Florida that are getting these things in the mail that basically tell them, oh fill this out to request a ballot. Well those aren't ballots and they may not even quote, send you a ballot. Those are fraudulent. They're just trying to get information from you. So don't make sure that the only way that you get a mail-in ballot is actually requesting it from the supervisor of elections. Now if you have been on the list in the past and have received it like in the primary, you may automatically receive a mail-in ballot. So but that will have the supervisor of elections logo and everything on it. So make sure that you rely on that, and if you don't fill out anything else and send it in, because otherwise, it could be fraud.
0: We had a uh, just to make another sidebar here. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I uh, we live at Weldon, over here in uh, Kings Point, and uh, recently uh, Diane received a, uh, an envelope addressed to her with a different middle name. It wasn't her name, Anne. Uh, it was her. The name was Ruth, and it, when she opened it up, it was already filled out partially with information of her address and and the, and the letter said that uh, we have you uh, living at a different location and we know that you moved and uh, we just want to make sure that you're registered to vote. So it, it appeared that you could actually send in two separate votes if you registered this through this, this forged letter that was sent to her. And she called the supervisor of elections and... Uh, reported it, and they said right out that it was fraud. So I encourage all of you out there to pay attention to what's going on, because uh, uh, like Kathleen just said, it's an obvious uh, uh, obvious uh, problem that's going on, not just here, but nationwide, and every little bit can amount to something big. So uh, thank you for bringing that to yeah, our it's attention. that's really important. Another question. Uh, how will you increase the ability for older voters to be able to safely vote in the future?
1: So one of the things that I want to do is, you know, data is really important. And so what you want to do with data is to look at it. So we'll look at what would happen in this, in this election, what's going to happen, where are people going to vote, um, how, obviously how many are voting by mail versus how many are going to sp- specific polls. And if we find that there are specific polls that are really overcrowded or we find some that people have complained about. Those are all the types of things that we need to take a look at. The other thing that's important is, you know, people ask this question all the time, like retired people may be able to vote at different times of the day more effectively than people who are just coming back from work. So there may be ways to have mobile polling places that pull up to the right, you know, areas or to a parking lot and you come and you give your ID and you vote, you know, at your retirement community between the hours of 10 and 2, if that's more, if we find that's more convenient. Um, and clearly, people who work until 5 o'clock, the, the, the polls are flooded. We need to figure out how to accommodate where most of the people trying to vote at right now and being able to expand that. So, it's really looking at how many people actually are voting in person and how to make it better.
0: Oh, That's, there's, that's a good idea. Thank you for that. Another question. How are you different from your opponent?
1: Well, my opponent, um, my opponent is a West Point graduate, which I applaud of anyone, and he went. He was in the military, um, and he also has a technology background. But I would say that the difference between Joe and myself is that he's 36 years old. Um, now, while while you can be very wise at 36 years old, I have a lot of business experience and. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit older than he is, let's say, and um, I think that the 30 years of business experience I have and actually, and in solving the problems for multiple types of companies makes me even more able to um, do a better job at this. So I just think that overall I have much greater experience, plus I'm a lawyer and he's not, and the supervisor of elections office is actually very subject to all the rules and regulations of the, you know, of state and federal governments.
0: Okay. Uh, last question I have here is, uh, what do you think are the most important issues facing the supervisor of elections in the future?
1: I think the biggest issue for the supervisor of elections in the future is technology and moving forward. I mean, I think that we're going to see a big shift this year because a lot of people, instead of voting in person, are probably going to vote by mail, and um, that requires a different kind of technology to be available, a different, a different level of resources. And then in the future, let's be honest, young people really probably want to vote from their phone someday. And we really need to figure out how to do that, how to do it um, so nobody can be hacked, so, so it's all legal, so everything works. So I think that's one of the biggest issues for the Supervisor election in the future, is to really make sure that they can move, move forward and not backward.
0: Okay. I, I have one question that, uh, that no one sent to me, but I have a question because it was brought to my attention recently by a concerned uh, resident in my section of Kings Point and the section is called Weldon and I, uh, I was told that there was uh, a notice a handwritten notice on the mailboxes at this uh, one building in uh, the Weldon community and uh, the notice was written by one of the residents in that building that said hi this is so and so I don't have to name her name right now, but uh, uh, she was offering to pick up the uh, mail-in ballots, the absentee ballots, on a daily basis and bring them to the polls for everybody. So I took a picture of that notice and I sent it to the uh, proper authority for the Broward County Republican Party, who sent it to the Republican Party of Florida office. Mm -hmm and my concern was legality, ballot harvesting. Here it is today, the 29th, and we're hearing a lot about voter fraud going on nationwide, more than we heard yesterday, more than we heard Sunday or Saturday. Every day it's getting worse. I found out through uh, my efforts that um, right now it doesn't seem to be an issue of ballot harvesting. I just want to know for my own benefit, and some of the other folks that did answer my email when I sent that out, does this make any sense at all? <laughs> <I> <laughs> no, just you're don't right.
1: Like... Ballot harvesting, and that's exactly how you describe it, or how it's defined, is somebody picking up the ballots for multiple people and delivering them. Now the theory is that people who are ballot harvesting are, are well, I don't know if you just saw the news in the recent days with Ilhan Omar and that people are actually paying, getting the votes, and they're being paid to, to fill out the votes and bring them in, you know, presumably filled out with a Democrat winning everything. But, um, yeah, this, this is exactly what ballot harvesting is, if, if people take your vote, take your vote, bring it in, or grab lots of votes. Now, there is a limited number of vote, of ballots that you can bring in and deliver in Broward County, and that's allegedly being counted. I haven't like experienced that myself to see how many how how well the process works. But you're only allowed to bring in really a limited number of, and I can't remember if it's four or six, but that's all of the ballots that you can bring in as an individual. So because the idea is that you know you bring it in for your your, your husband or or you know, your spouse or and maybe a family member or two or a neighbor or two, but you can't bring in unlimited number of ballots in like this person was obviously trying to do. Now also if you do let somebody else bring in a ballot for you, which I wouldn't recommend unless it's your spouse, um, and that depends how well you like your spouse or agree with them on politics, sure. right? But make sure it's signed and sealed because um, once it's signed and st- sealed it would be really difficult for them here to open it up and change the insides because of the way that it, I don't know if you remember, call it if you've used mail in ballots before you recall called it, but you have to seal it and then, then sign over the seal and make sure you do that. I, because when I was looking at it, I was like you could miss, and they could, in theory, make sure you're going over the seal so that, that if somebody opened it up, your signature is going to be um, torn apart. So um, that's an important thing to look at, but that's a really good question.
0: Thank you, thank you. I, I've, uh, I've been encouraging the people on my contact list to uh, put a mask on and get to the polls to vote in person, Absolutely. even if you receive uh, an absentee ballot. If you have to mail it in, track your vote, Exactly. track your vote, make sure it's registered by election day, and if it's not registered by election day, put the mask on, get down to the polls and, and vote go in and person. And go
1: to early voting because that's yeah. just as effective and there aren't as many people there if you're afraid of being around a lot of
0: people. Right. Well, thank you, uh, Kathleen. I, I hope uh, the folks get get to understand a little bit more about you. Unfortunately, during these times of uh, this virus thing, we can't have meetings so people can't see you, but they would think that you're not. Uh, anywhere nears a lot over thirty six. So just, just, <laughs> just so you, just so the folks know, just so the folks know. Okay.
1: Um, let me give you my website so that you can go there. It's www.KatherineMcBreen.com. So um, that's easy enough for everybody to find. And I would love, and my my Facebook page is Katherine McBreen for Supervisor of Elections. So that's easy enough to find as well. So if you have any questions, go to either of those and. Um, I hope that everything's to be November 3rd, or before.
0: (laughs) right. Very good. And I'm sure if anybody wants to see you, they can meet you on a corner somewhere. Exactly. At a rally, of course. At a rally, of course. Exactly. (laughs) So that would be great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to have our next uh, speaker, uh, Greg Rossman. He's running for the uh, seat of state attorney in the 17th Judicial Circuit. And uh, I've also stood on the corner with, Greg, on a few different occasions here in and out of Broward County, Uh, I met Greg down in Davie at the corner of uh, Griffin and University. Griffin and University. Once I think it was on Fourth of July.
2: It may have on
0: Fourth of July. was the first time I stood with him, and since then I've seen him over at the corner of uh, Coral uh, in Coral Springs at the corner of University and Sample. Um, That and these. Areas that I mentioned to you, including Federal Highway and Oakland Park Boulevard, those are the three locations that are constant now, from now till uh, election day. Every Saturday, uh, from ten to twelve, uh, in Davy and Coral Springs, and from twelve to two, in uh, Oakland Boulevard uh, by Oakland Boulevard and Federal Highway. So you're liable to see uh, Greg or Kathleen at any of these locations. You can come and ask them questions directly. Or just come by and blow your horn and show support for the uh, candidates and for the president. Okay, uh, Greg, we're going to ask you to give us a little bit about yourself. And then I have a few questions that I was given, uh, sent to me from some of the folks. And, uh, sure. Uh, go right
2: ahead when you're ready. Thank you very much, first of all, Joe, for, for doing this, actually, and taking the time. It takes a lot of time and energy of your own. So very much appreciate that and appreciate being invited. So I am running to be the state attorney for Broward County. Broward County uh, is its own Judicial Circuit, and that's what Joe referenced before, the 17th Judicial Circuit. So the jurisdiction for me is all of Broward County. In many other states, the state attorney is thought of as the district attorney. That is the person who decides whether or not somebody gets charged with a crime. So when uh, a local police agency or the sheriff's office arrests somebody and they think that they have probable cause for that person to be charged with a crime, it goes over to the state attorney's office for review. and. The state attorneys, uh, employees, assistant state attorneys have to decide whether or not there's a good faith basis to actually charge that person with the crime as stated in the probable cause affidavit. So uh, I did that for 20 years. Um, I am a second generation South Floridian. Nobody is is from here. Everybody's from someplace else. My father was born in uh, Miami in 1936. My mom is from New York. So that makes me kind of got one foot in both buckets of South Floridians. Uh, Somebody who's from here and somebody who's from New York. Uh, My mom was born in Goshen, New York. In 1939, 55 years old. I am a son. I'm the youngest of five boys. I'm a brother. I'm a husband, and I'm a father of two beautiful. I can't say children anymore. Adults, young adults, and I've been a lawyer 26 years. I have served um, those listening to this podcast and everybody in Broward County for 20 of those years. From 1994 to 2014, I was an assistant state attorney in your state attorney's office. Most of my time, three quarters of my time, was spent four years as a supervisor. Uh, two in county court, two in the felony trial unit, five years in the career criminal unit uh, where I tried 20 to 25 cases a year. When we talk about career criminals, we're talking about people with three, four, five, and sometimes 10, 15 prior convictions where after a while you realize uh, it is a small number of people that commit a large percentage of our crimes. So we we kind of focus our assets there and and I was put in that unit to try those cases. Then I went to the organized crime unit for two years um, and tried some racketeering um, cases. And then the last seven and a half years i was in the homicide trial unit Uh, and in that time frame i tried 65 homicide trials which is just really an outsized number didn't know didn't keep track at the time the the agency kept track Um, when you're there you just do the work you do the work that you're required to do so i did that and since the last six years i've been out i have my own practice now it's called rossman legal and i am contracted with uh, several of your local cities uh, police departments as a legal advisor to make sure that uh, you know, police departments do a great job of training themselves on what I call the tactical side of things, which is how to how to drive your car defensively, how to use your taser, uh, even how to use your voice to de-escalate things. All the tackles of how to shoot your weapon if necessary, uh, all of those things they don't didn't and still don't do the best job of training on what I would call the intellectual side, which is has the law changed, and if the law changes, what does it allow an officer to do, and what does it limit an officer? To do? So they're getting better at that. That's what I do as a contract attorney to them, making sure I stay up in the law. The legislature passes a new law. I make sure they're advised of, they have maybe further authority or they're limited in their authority. And make sure we do a lot of training so that they know the laws presently as they exist. And really two things, as I like to say. One is what the extent of their powers, but also every government agency needs to know, including police officers, the limit of their authority. Just because you have a badge and you have a gun doesn't mean you have unlimited authority. And, and most of the officers take that very, very seriously. They just don't get enough training, in my opinion, uh, in that. And that's one of the things I'm going to do if you elect me as your state attorney. I'm going to make sure that I work with those agencies and I make sure that they understand that uh, their job is to enforce the law, but only to the extent the law allows. No more, no less. Okay. So, okay. Um, thank you for that.
0: Uh, I do have a few questions that I had some folks send to me. Uh first one is, what does the state attorney do, which you've covered some of that, uh, but uh, … That is a
2: great question. Though. A lot of people don't know. People, sure. So yeah. if, if I can just pick up yeah, on sure, that for absolutely. a second. a lot of people say, oh, are you running for attorney general? The attorney general is in Tallahassee, presently it's Ashley Moody, and she is the chief legal officer for the entire state, mostly in civil lawsuits, things like that, contracting, and she also handles all appeals for criminal convictions that we would obtain from the state attorney's office but the state attorney uh, himself or herself in a jurisdiction sets the tone for law enforcement in that entire jurisdiction. So it is my job to make sure that um, and that was on silence so on. Yeah. Um to make sure that um, we don't ultimately become Portland or Seattle. It's it's to make sure that police agencies know that they like I just said they have certain uh, and a certain extent to enforce the law also the limits of that, but they need to know that if they do that job well, someone's going to back them up and the law is going to be properly enforced.
0: Got it. Okay. Uh, The second part of that question was, why why should voters, citizens care about this
2: race? Very important. Um, Most people don't know anything about the state attorney's race because it has not been on the presidential ballot since, I believe, 1976. Wow. So this is almost everybody's first opportunity to vote for the state attorney. Uh, I was 11 years old. I was in fifth grade at the time. Uh, We have had the same state attorney. Uh, He's an honorable, decent man, Michael J. Satz. I worked for him for 20 years. He took a chance on me October 3rd of 1994 and hired me. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about him. At the same time, there's no Fortune 500 company or successful company out there that has the same CEO they had in 1976 that they have today. just It doesn't happen. There's always a need. I use Microsoft as an example. Bill Gates is a genius, but he doesn't run the day-to-day operation anymore because you need need some kind of change. You need some new blood. So uh, this has not been on the ballot because he ran unopposed many times. And when he had opposition, it was only uh, within the same party. So it was just within a party primary. In this particular race there's myself and there's also another gentleman harold Pryor. uh the difference between myself and mr Pryor: i'm 55 he's 33 i've been a lawyer 26 years he's been a lawyer seven in my 26 years i worked 20 years as a prosecutor six of those now with my own firm working with law enforcement in his seven years he's had already five jobs this would be his sixth job in seven years um, i don't say that necessarily in a negative way i, I think that that if you're hiring somebody which is what the listeners are going to do. Either I'm asking them to hire me as their state attorney. Mr. Pryor's asking to be hired as the state attorney. I think you want to look and say, who would I hire personally? If I was hiring an attorney with these two gentlemen, who would I hire? Would you look at their qualifications, look at their background, look at their history? Um, so so people should care because depending on who the state attorney is, um, law enforcement either can or cannot do their job. And if law enforcement can't do their job, we know full well, looking around the country, what happens in those agencies, those jurisdictions where Law enforcement is handcuffed and they cannot do their job properly. It Um, directly affects your safety.
0: Absolutely, and thank you for that. But since we're on that subject, uh, defunding or reimagining are the new words that we hear going around the country.
2: Well, you hear words like reimagining because the the truth is there are people that want to defund the police. And when they came out and said that, they thought it would catch fire. And they realized people heard that and said, well, that's kind of crazy defund the police so they go back to the marketing people and they say we don't really defunding doesn't really mean defunding it means defunding Um, and if you sadly the the loud um, small group of people that say that say that because they believe there's this injustice between law enforcement and people of color I will tell you this when you defund the police in the places where it's happened the first people to suffer are people of color using Broward County as an example if you defund the police they don't get defunded in Parkland they don't get defunded in Coral Springs. They don't pull back if they're in Hollywood. They're not pulling out of Emerald Hills. It's Carver Ranches. It's West Pompano. It's Lauder Hill. The, those are the places that where the, the budget is where they're struggling. And when the police pull back, people of color suffer the most because crime goes up, and it goes up in their neighborhood first. The economically disadvantaged neighborhoods are always the first to lose. So it makes no sense to me when you hear people say, defunding the police. Now, on the flip side of that, are there things police departments can do better? 100%. There's no government agency that runs efficiently that I know of. There's, most businesses don't run at 100% efficiency. Businesses and government agencies ought to be looking at themselves every day, following on, up on what uh, Ms. Green said, they should always be auditing themselves. And not auditing, I don't mean just money, but auditing how, how well do we do our job? Are we efficient at what we do? There are always better ways to do things. There are ways, and there's a lot of things to brag about in Broward County that people don't know. The chiefs meet once a month, the Broward County Chiefs Police Association. They meet once a month. They talk amongst each other. They share what works in their jurisdiction, what didn't work in their jurisdiction, so that they can use that, that collaboration to get together and figure out um, what's best for them, what's best for their jurisdiction. So can they also come together and share um, resources? 100% they can. And does that save the taxpayers' money? Yes, it does. But from, from somebody who's never worked in, um, in law enforcement or somebody who's never really impacted law enforcement, let come from the outside and say, we're just going to defund. The first thing that happens is the low man on the totem pole gets, gets cut. So the second, third, or fourth year police officer, if there's layoffs, it goes from the bottom up, not from the top down. They're the ones making the least amount of money. So you have to lay more of them off than you do people making a lot of money. And they're the ones probably the most trained in diversity and de-escalation and all the things that the police agencies have learned about themselves in making themselves better. They're the ones most schooled in it. So you know this effort actually damages the, the goals that, that the people who say they want to defund actually claim to want. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, your experience as a prosecutor
0: and an attorney, why should that matter to voters?
2: Well, I don't know if people know this, but the budget, I think, is around $42 million. There's over 500 employees in the Broward State Attorney's Office alone. So if you're going to hire one of myself or Mr. Pryor, I would want you to think and say, what life experience do they have to take on this? It's a very consequential position. And then what legal experience? Have they ever done the job? Mr. Pryor worked in the State Attorney's Office for a little less than two years, I believe. Um, But I, I worked starting, like anything else, in county court all the way up to homicide. I'd like to say that I followed the Publix theory. My first job, I shouldn't say my first, my first W-2 job, my first job was at 14 as a dishwasher off the books. First job on the books was working at Publix, and Publix is a great corporation because they make you start at the bottom of their corporation, no matter what your experience is. You start as in my case, they used the term bag boy, now they're service helpers, or whatever, uh, and you learn from the bottom up, and that's how you learn about the whole, the entire operation. So the same thing in the state attorney's office I started at the bottom like everybody does. I worked my way all the way up to the top, which was homicide. Since then, in six years having my own practice, I have employees. Uh, I have to m- pay payroll taxes and I have to make sure that money's coming in to, for the for the firm to work. So I learned the business side of that. I like to say I made every mistake a small business owner can make in the in, in within a couple of years, and then hopefully now we're we're much more efficient. So the experience should matter. People should should wonder and say. If, if somebody has to decide tomorrow, let's use an example, extreme example, but it happens every day sadly, is the death penalty appropriate in a particular set of facts? I've actually stood in front of a jury and qualified death qualified jury and I've prosecuted death penalty cases and there are people on death row that I've prosecuted. It is a, it is a physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting task to, to prosecute a death penalty case and it should be. There's no, no reason it shouldn't be. Everybody, the judge, the court reporter, the jurors, everybody is exhausted and they should be. But it is sadly a necessary tool and presently a lawful tool. Um, If you have not been through that, I don't think you can have the depth of the experience to understand what the office needs and where the assets ought to be appropriately applied. I'll give you one example, um, something I learned since I left the office. Elderly exploitation, big words for elder abuse. I believe it is as rampant now as the pill mills were 10 years ago in Barrow County. It's under the radar. Nobody's prosecuting those cases. The police departments aren't bringing those cases because they don't know how to investigate them. And that's because the state attorney has never stood up and said, this is a problem. We're going to put our assets forward, and we're going to address that. So I'm going to do that. The first thing, One of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to create a new elderly exploitation unit. We're going to have three or four lawyers. We're going to have a paralegal, and investigator, and they're going to create a template on how to investigate and prosecute those cases. Then we're going to go to the police departments, and we're going to train them. So right now, if you called from Pittsburgh and said my uh, mother or grandmother's condominium has been deeded to somebody else, she's still living there, but it's not her name anymore, we don't know who that person is, police department would say that's civil, call a lawyer, and sue. And, and you could do that, but it's also a crime. If, if she didn't sign that deed, she didn't create that deed and give that to that person, it's a crime. Her home has been stolen. Her condominium has been stolen. So it's not civil. It's, it's crime. The problem, the police departments don't know what to do. And it's not that they don't care. It's not they don't think it's a good, they just don't know what to do because nobody's trained them. So, we're going to train them and we're going to say, listen, when that call comes in, you're going to call one of those lawyers in that unit and we're going to start subpoenaing bank records. We're going to subpoena the lawyer that drew up the deed. We're going to find out who filed the deed and we're going to go after everybody. And we're going to figure that out and we're going to make sure that that goes back to the, the rightful person. Same thing with bank accounts. I've, I've helped three people since I left. Bank accounts were totally cleaned out by a financial advisor. In one case, it was an accountant. Uh, it's just it's rampant, and they had no idea. But for good neighbors who saw people hanging around that shouldn't maybe have been hanging around, um, we're we're gonna that's gonna come that comes from some life experience that I've had, and uh, and some time in the office about how to investigate those cases. We're gonna set that unit up, and and that's gonna be top priority
0: number one. Thank you. Uh, I hope you're all listening closely to this because it, these are issues that affect uh, everybody, regardless of what party you're with, obviously. Yes. Uh, another question. Homicide trials, which are relevant to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas case. Um, can you comment on that?
2: Yes, yeah, that, that kind of picks up on where I was going. Presently, uh, most people in Broward County know um, that there was an awful tragedy uh, several years ago on February 14th at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, where somebody went into the school and, and uh, devastated the, those at the school. Seventeen uh, victims killed and those 17 injured and hundreds and hundreds affected mentally and scarred, uh, that case presently is being prosecuted by the state attorney, Michael J. Satz. When the next person's elected, he will no longer work there, presumably, although Mr. Pryor um, has said that he, uh, he, previously he said in the primary he would not keep Mike Satz on because Mike has been there 44 years and he made claims that there, there's systemic racism in the state attorney's office and such. Since he won the primary, he says now he would keep Mr. Satz on and try the case. I've tried cases like that. I've tried some of the most complicated cases. Anybody that wants to Google or search my name, Greg is spelled with two G's, G-R-E-G-G, Rossman, R-O-S-S-M-A-N. You'll see that I've tried the most complicated cases in Broward County history. I would try that case. I would want Mike Satz to stay as a consultant because he's been prepping the case. Sadly, because of coronavirus and COVID, that case is not going to make trial for eight months, a year, maybe even longer after that. Because right now, our Supreme Court still has jury trials on lockdown. We can't even do a jury trial. They've been locked down since March. There's a tremendous backlog that's going to come up. So somebody needs to, to look at all the cases that have, that have accrued since March, the homicide cases, and figure out which ones need to go to grand jury for consideration of first degree murder, which is the only way to charge somebody through a grand jury for, with first degree murder. And you kind of have to have that experience. And like I said before, I tried 65 of those and I handled probably hundreds of others. The ones that went to trial, that's the 65 trials. Uh, also police-involved shootings, I've handled stand your ground issues. All those things are relevant to figuring out what is, what is right, not just for that case, the case referred to as the Stoneman Douglas case, but the, the reason that case is so important is because if for some reason uh, a plea is offered in that case, a plea to life as opposed to death, it affects every other death case in Broward County and probably also in the state of Florida. Too, too, uh, probably too complicated to get into for them like this, but absolutely has a ripple effect on every single death penalty case spending in the state of Florida. I'm not sure that my opponent knows or appreciates that, um, just because he hasn't had the experience to do that, um, but it's, it's, it should be of great concern to everybody. It should be great concerns, particularly to the families that were directly affected by that case, that that case is, is, is handled appropriately. Uh, my opponent has said that he is personally 100% against the death penalty, and that's I take no issue with anybody's personal opinion. But then to seek a job where you would actually have to enforce that, to me that seems like that would be quite a conflict. So Got it. Okay.
0: Uh, priorities for the office, which include elderly exploitation, career criminals, animal abuse, hate crimes, training and accountability. Can you comment on that?
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that. So I talked about the elderly exploitation a letter. That's gonna be that's gonna be job one. The second thing when I talk about career criminals, I mentioned before, being in that unit. Uh, the data proves this. It's not just somebody making up. The data shows a very small number of people commit a very large number of our crimes. So let's figure out who they are. Let's put our best prosecutors, our best judges on those cases. You want to get the best defense lawyers? That's fine too, because they're entitled to due process. I want due process if I get accused of a crime. But let's put our our assets there and let's focus on them. And the state of Florida did this in the late '80s, early '90s. Right now, there's this big push about letting everybody out of prison, letting letting everybody out of jail. We tried that. I'm old enough to tell you, and those of you that moved here since the 80s don't know, we tried that. In the late 70s and early 80s, people were serving one-third of their sentence. So if you were sentenced to 30 years, you got out in 10. What we found out is within three months, you committed another serious crime. So we created these designations. They're called habitual offender, habitual violent offender, three strikes offenders, prison release reoffenders. offenders, all those things. We created those designations that have minimum mandatories for a good reason because you've earned it. You've already committed three, four, five, six, ten crimes, whether it's from another state, another jurisdiction like Dade County. Uh, and then those people, if we take them out of the game, crime plummets. And that's what we are benefiting from right now. Everybody talks about how the crime rate's way down, it's continuing going down for 10, 12 years. It's because we are taking those multiple offenders off the playing field, if you want to use that term. And if you do that, then we have more resources for uh, a drug court, which we have, Some be proud of in Broward County, a mental health court, we have a veterans court. Those are great diversion programs, but they don't work if we're not focusing on the people committing the committing serious crimes. The other thing that you mentioned about animal abuse, there's data that shows us anybody that, that can, can perpetuate cruelty on a helpless animal later offends against human beings as well. First of all, to, to be depraved enough to, to, to commit cruelty on an animal to me says enough right there. So one of the things, again, is we don't really have a person in the state attorney's office who's devoted to just learning those cases. And we're going to have somebody, there may not be enough work for that person to only do that, but there is going to be one central person that all of those cases filter through for case filing, possibly even for prosecution. We're going to put resources there and make sure that those cases are looked at because it's one thing to to, uh, to either neglect or to torture an animal, but it also leads, uh, it shows us there's a certain depravity there that's going to lead to victimizing human beings very shortly thereafter. The other thing is uh, training with law enforcement. I don't think that we do a good enough job Presently, the state attorney's office interacting with law enforcement and saying these are our expectations. They, they kind of work as separate entities, which is odd because they have to work together for the system to work. So I'm going to reach out and say, listen, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to, like I mentioned, the little exploitation. We're going to train you how to do something, and then we're going to expect you to do it. And if you don't, you're going to hear from me. I also want them to tell me, what are we doing wrong? What could the state attorney's office do better? Because we're not perfect, right. and it's it, you get a better view from the outside in where they're going to say, this is where you're inefficient. This is, what, this is what costs us money. We have guys working overtime because you're making us do A, B, and C. Great, let's work together. Let's figure it out, and let's make it efficient. So those are, those are my priorities, basically. First and foremost, victims need to know they're going to have a voice. Not just mine, but anybody who works for me. They're going to have a voice in the system. We're going to focus on those career criminals, take them out of the game. We're going to create an elderly exploitation unit, and we're going to train officers um, on how to investigate elderly exploitation, animal abuse, and we're going to have them bring those cases forward. I think it's very, very important. I think it takes an experienced hand to do that. So the last thing I would tell you, too, is, as you've mentioned a couple of times, it doesn't matter. There was a, a sheriff here who would like to say that when you call 911, the first question they ask is, what is your emergency? They never ask, are you a Democrat or Republican? Right. Questions never asked. So if you are victimized in a case, we don't look at the case and say, is the victim a Democrat or Republican? Is the perpetrator, the suspect, a Democrat or Republican? Uh, those things, um, if, if you're running for a legislative position, you're going to pass laws, I'd say that's relevant when somebody's party affiliation is because it tends to show which, which way they think, maybe people say more conservative or more liberal, whichever it is. But for uh, you know, certain constitutional officers, such as the state attorney, it, it really means nothing. It doesn't direct you towards anything, in my opinion. I think people ought to look at the qualifications and say, who am I gonna hire as my personal attorney? And if they do that, I ask them to go to, if they want more, they can go to www.vote, V-O-T-E, for, F-O-R, Greg, G-R-E-G-G. So it's voteforgreg2020.com, that's the website. And Facebook is at Rossman R O S S M A N for state attorney. So there's no numbers in there. Rossman F O R state attorney. They they can they can message me. and I'm happy. People ought to do when we do things like this. It very uh, get very interactive messages on Facebook. Reach out. Answer any questions that last. Thank you. That
0: actually my last question was uh, should the state attorney uh, uh, be uh, you know be partisan or political? You kind of answered that, but I do have a question in
2: addition to that. Sure. Um, have you gotten any uh, endorsements that we should know about? That's a great question. Actually, yes. Uh, so, so, again, it's very um, against the grain, so to speak, uh, since I am registered as a Republican, to get union endorsements. But I have union endorsements from the uh, PBA of Broward County, the FOP, Fraternal Order of Police District 5, IUPA, which is the uh, union that represents Broward Sheriff's Office deputies, and also uh, from retired Colonel Al Pollack, he, though he's a Democrat. Um, he's an African-American. I've known him a long long time. We worked together for a long time when I was in the state attorney's office He was in the sheriff's office. He was the commander of the courthouse for a good time when I was there um, And he's known me a long long time He's actually endorsed me across across whether you want to say it's racial lines party lines affiliation He just believes like I do that it ought to be the most qualified person the best person with the job So on top of that, there's also uh, a rabbi that I met with last Wednesday Rabbi Moisha Meyer uh, and hopefully he gets a shout out here. He, he's uh, Rabbi of a Chabad in uh, Northeast Fort Lauderdale. We met, and we sat down for an hour and a half, and we talked, uh, and he came to the same conclusion. He said it has nothing to do with party affiliation, religion, ethnicity, or anything like that, that it ought to be the most qualified person. And proud to say that uh, he has uh, my flyers at uh, his Chabad, and uh, he is uh, advising everybody in his uh, Chabad to go ahead and vote for Greg. So Wonderful. those are the, uh, the main endorsements. Uh, beyond that, it's uh, my wife and kids, which was the most important endorsement to start with. Oh,
0: Thanks. I, uh, I'm impressed with the two of you, sir. It's been a wonderful interview, and uh, I hope the people that are listening in can please pass this on to everyone to uh, get the word out, you know, because, again, unfortunately we can't have a meeting to, uh, t- to show everybody the face that goes with the voice, but one good thing about these podcasts, unlike a meeting, a meeting you usually get maybe five or ten minutes. You had some time here to discuss. Uh, in depth, what you're all about. And I think that's very important. And Thank you. And it. I hope the people that are listening to this appreciate it and please pass it on. I thank you for that. I'm going to wrap it up because we are uh, running some time here. I don't want to make it uh, too long because then everybody starts snoring and falling asleep or whatever, you know, but I just want to uh, remind everybody what I mentioned earlier enthusiasm is contagious. Rallies across the country, boat parades, caravans, street corners. This Saturday, there's a there's actually a boat parade from Fort Lauderdale to Bo- Boca Raton. Uh, I'll send the information out again. It's something you can get in your car and just uh, uh, go along the go along the parade route. Pull over, wave, toot your horn, wave a flag, whatever you can do. Make up a sign. Uh, that's what this is all about. Don't surrender to the mob mentality. If you're doing any research and you see some of these uh, pictures from across the country where you're outside having... Uh, a little snack at the outdoor dining and somebody comes along and gets in your face with a, uh, a megaphone and telling you to put your fist up or yell out somebody's name that you don't even know and uh, you sit there with your husband, your wife your girlfriend, your boyfriend and you have to uh, bite your tongue because you might end up uh, getting smacked on the head or something uh, don't surrender to mob mentality vote in person or track your ballot and remember don't give your ballot to anyone unless you trust that person and who do you trust more than your husband or your wife? Not many. Uh, Volunteer if you can. One last request. Volunteer. I recently sent out uh, a request for uh, Chef Michelle Jones in District 1. We are in District 3 here, Tamarack. Uh, Our representative on your ballot is Julie Fishman. So, uh, I've recommended uh, supporting Julie, uh, but I'm also recommending volunteering if you can for uh, Michelle chef uh, uh, her name is Chef Michelle Jones. I believe she's taught uh, cooking classes over here in Tamarack at the uh, rec Center uh, hardworking girl. I come from a 25 year background of uh, uh, owning a deli and I know how difficult it is to be in a kitchen and sweating. Uh, bullets as they say, Uh, I can still use that word. Sweating bullets when the temperature is hot outside and the humidity is uh, sweltering and you're in the kitchen and uh, I know what it's like to work hard under those circumstances. So uh, my hat goes off to uh, Chef Michelle Jones and um, she's running against uh, a man named Marlon Bolton down there in District 1. And uh, Michelle Jones uh, can be a big asset. To the town of uh, the city of Tamarack, and she'll be a big help to uh, our mayor, Michelle Gomez, of which I know most of us listening to this have a lot of respect and support for. So, uh, again, I ask you to uh, do your research. Enthusiasm is contagious. Try not to delete all my emails before you read them. And uh, with that, I'll say thank you to Raul, who's the man that makes this happen for our podcast for the Kings Point Republican Club of Tamarack that was never supposed to happen.